Chapter One of Characters from Sketches by Boz. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sketches by Boz by Charles Dickens. Illustrations by George Cruikshank. Chapter One of Characters Thoughts About People. It is strange with how little notice, good, bad, or indifferent, a man may live and die in London. He awakens no sympathy in the breast of any single person. His existence is a matter of interest to no one save himself. He cannot be said to be forgotten when he dies, for no one remembered him when he was alive. There is a numerous class of people in this great metropolis who seem not to possess a single friend and whom nobody appears to care for. Urged by imperative necessity in the first instance, they have resorted to London in search of employment and the means of subsistence. It is hard, we know, to break the ties which bind us to our homes and friends, and harder still to efface the thousand recollections of happy days and old times which have been slumbering in our bosoms for years, and only rush upon the mind to bring before it associations connected with the friends we have left the scenes we have beheld, too, probably for the last time, and the hopes we once cherished but may entertain no more. These men, however, happily for themselves, have long forgotten such thoughts. Old country friends have died or emigrated, former correspondents have become lost like themselves in the crowd and turmoil of some busy city, and they have gradually settled down into mere passive creatures of habit and endurance. We were seated in the enclosure of St. James's Park the other day, when our attention was attracted by a man whom we immediately put down in our own mind as one of this class. He was a tall, thin, pale person, in a black coat, scanty grey trousers, little pinched-up gaiters, and brown beaver gloves. He had an umbrella in his hand, not for use, for the day was fine, but evidently because he always carried one to the office in the morning. He walked up and down before the little patch of grass on which the chairs are placed for hire, not as if he were doing it for pleasure or recreation, but as if it were a matter of compulsion, just as he would walk to the office every morning from the back settlements of Islington. It was Monday. He had escaped for four-and-twenty hours from the thraldom of the desk, and was walking here for exercise and amusement, perhaps for the first time in his life. We were inclined to think he had never had a holiday before, and that he did not know what to do with himself. Children were playing on the grass, groups of people were loitering about, chatting and laughing, but the man walked steadily up and down, unheeding and unheeded, his spare, pale face looking as if it were incapable of bearing the expression of curiosity or interest. There was something in the man's manner and appearance which told us, we fancied, his whole life, or rather his whole day, for a man of this sort has no variety of days. We thought we almost saw the dingy little back office into which he walks every morning, hanging his hat on the same peg, and placing his legs beneath the same desk, first taking off that black coat which lasts the year through and putting on the one which did duty last year, and which he keeps in his desk to save the other. 
There he sits till five o'clock, working on all day as regularly as the dial over the mantelpiece, whose loud ticking is as monotonous as his whole existence, only raising his head when someone enters the counting-house, or when, in the midst of some difficult calculation, he looks up at the ceiling, as if there were inspiration in the dusty skylight, with a green knot in the centre of every pane of glass. About five, or half-past, he slowly dismounts from his accustomed stool, and, again changing his coat, proceeds to his usual dining-place, somewhere near Bucklersbury. The waiter recites the bill of fare in a rather confidential manner, for he is a regular customer, and after inquiring, "'What's in the best cut?' and "'What was up last?' he orders a small plate of roast beef with greens and half a pint of porter. He has a small plate to-day, because greens are a penny more than potatoes, and he had two breads yesterday, with the additional enormity of a cheese the day before. This important point settled, he hangs up his hat, he took it off the moment he sat down, and bespeaks the paper after the next gentleman. If he can get it while he is at dinner, he eats with much greater zest, balancing it against the water-bottle, and eating a bit of beef, and reading a line or two alternately. Exactly at five minutes before the hour is up, he produces a shilling, pays the reckoning, carefully deposits the change in his waistcoat pocket, first deducting a penny for the waiter, and returns to the office, from which, if it is not foreign post-night, he again sallies forth in about half an hour. He then walks home, at his usual pace, to his little back room at Islington, where he has his tea, perhaps solacing himself during the meal with the conversation of his landlady's little boy, whom he occasionally rewards with a penny for solving problems in simple addition. Sometimes there is a letter or two to take up to his employers in Russell Square, and then the wealthy man of business, hearing his voice, calls out from the dining-parlour, "'Come in, Mr. Smith!' and Mr. Smith, putting his hat at the feet of one of the hall-chairs, walks timidly in, and, being condescendingly desired to sit down, carefully tucks his legs under his chair, and sits at a considerable distance from the table, while he drinks the glass of sherry which is poured out for him by the eldest boy, and after drinking which he backs and slides out of the room in a state of nervous agitation from which he does not perfectly recover, until he finds himself once more in the Islington Road." Poor, harmless creatures such men are, contented but not happy, broken-spirited and humbled, they may feel no pain, but they never know pleasure. Compare these men with another class of beings who, like them, have neither friend nor companion, but whose position in society is the result of their own choice. These are generally old fellows, with white heads and red faces, addicted to port wine and hessian boots, who from some cause, real or imaginary—generally the former, the excellent reason being that they are rich and their relations poor—grow suspicious of everybody, and do the misanthropical in chambers, taking great delight in thinking themselves unhappy, and making everybody they come near miserable. You may see such men as these anywhere. You will know them at coffee-houses by their discontented exclamations and the luxury of their dinners, at theatres by their always sitting in the same place and looking with a jaundiced eye on all the young people near them, at church by the pomposity with which they enter, and the loud tone in which they repeat the responses, 
at parties by their getting cross at whist and hating music. An old fellow of this kind will have his chambers splendidly furnished and collect books, plate and pictures about him in profusion, not so much for his own gratification as to be superior to those who have the desire but not the means to compete with him. He belongs to two or three clubs, and is envied and flattered and hated by the members of them all. Sometimes he will be appealed to by a poor relation, a married nephew perhaps, for some little assistance, and then he will declaim with honest indignation on the improvidence of young married people, the worthlessness of a wife, the insolence of having a family, the atrocity of getting into debt with a hundred and twenty-five pounds a year, and other unpardonable crimes, winding up his exhortations with a complacent review of his own conduct, and a delicate allusion to parochial relief. He dies, some day after dinner, of apoplexy, having bequeathed his property to a public society, and the institution erects a tablet to his memory, expressive of their admiration of his Christian conduct in this world, and their comfortable conviction of his happiness in the next. But next to our very particular friends, hackney coachmen, cabmen, and cads, whom we admire in proportion to the extent of their cool impudence and perfect self-possession, there is no class of people who amuse us more than London apprentices. They are no longer an organised body, bound down by solemn compact to terrify His Majesty's subjects whenever it pleases them to take offence in their heads and staves in their hands. They are only bound now by indentures, and, as to their valour, it is easily restrained by the wholesome dread of the new police, and a perspective view of a damp station-house terminating in a police office and a reprimand. They are still, however, a peculiar class, and not the less pleasant for being inoffensive. Can any one fail to have noticed them in the streets on Sunday? And were there ever such harmless efforts at the grand and magnificent as the young fellows display? We walked down the Strand a Sunday or two ago behind a little group, and they furnished food for our amusement the whole way. They had come out of some part of the city, it was between three and four o'clock in the afternoon, and they were on their way to the park. There were four of them, all arm in arm, with white kid gloves like so many bridegrooms, light trousers of unprecedented patterns, and coats for which the English language has yet no name a kind of a cross between a great-coat and a surtout, with the collar of the one, the skirts of the other, and pockets peculiar to themselves. Each of the gentlemen carried a thick stick, with a large tassel at the top, which he occasionally twirled gracefully round, and the whole four, by way of looking easy and unconcerned, were walking with a paralytic swagger irresistibly ludicrous. One of the party had a watch, about the size and shape of a reasonable Ribston pippin, jammed into his waistcoat pocket, which he carefully compared with the clocks at St. Clement's and the new church, the illuminated clock at Exeter Change, the clock of St. Martin's Church, and the clock of the Horse Guards. When they at last arrived in St. James's Park, the member of the party who had the best-made boots on hired a second chair expressly for his feet and flung himself on this tuppenny-worth of sylvan luxury with an air which levelled all distinctions between Brooks and Snooks, Crockfords and Bagnigy Wells. We may smile at such people, but they can never excite our anger. 
they are usually on the best terms with themselves, and it follows almost as a matter of course in good humour with everyone about them. Besides, they are always the faint reflection of higher lights, and, if they do display a little occasional foolery in their own proper persons, it is surely more tolerable than precocious puppyism in the quadrant, whiskered dandyism in Regent Street and Pall Mall, or gallantry in its dotage anywhere. End of chapter 1 of Characters from Sketches by Boz